Section 23 of Grey's Anatomy, Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion Anatomy of the Human Body, Part 1, by Henry Grey The Temporal Bone, Part 2 Petrus Portion, Pars Petrosa Pyramis. The petrous portion or pyramid is pyramidal and is wedged in at the base of the skull between the sphenoid and occipital. Directed medialward, forward, and a little upward, it presents for examination a base, an apex, three surfaces, and three angles, and contains in its interior the essential parts of the organ of hearing. Base. The base is fused with the internal surfaces of the squama and mastoid portion. Apex. The apex, rough and uneven, is received into the angular interval between the posterior border of the great wing of the sphenoid and the basilar part of the occipital. It presents the anterior or internal orifice of the carotid canal and forms the posterior lateral boundary of the forum lacerum. Surfaces. The anterior surface forms the posterior part of the middle fossa of the base of the skull and is continuous with the inner surface of the squamous portion to which it is united by the petrosquamous suture, remains of which are distinct even at a late period of life. It is marked by depressions for the convolutions of the brain, and presents six points for examination. 1. Near the centre, an eminence, eminentia arcuata, which indicates the situation of the superior semicircular canal. 2. In front of, and a little lateral to this eminence, a depression indicating the position of the tympanic cavity. Here the layer of bone which separates the tympanic from the cranial cavity is extremely thin, and is known as the tegmen tympani. 3. A shallow groove, sometimes double, leading lateralwards and backwards to an oblique opening, the hiatus of the facial canal, for the passage of the greater superficial petrosal nerve and the petrosal branch of the middle meningeal artery. 4. Lateral to the hiatus, a smaller opening, occasionally seen, for the passage of the lesser superficial petrosal nerve. 5. Near the apex of the bone, the termination of the carotid canal, the wall of which in this situation is deficient in front. 6. Above this canal, the shallow trigeminal impression for the reception of the semilunar ganglion. The posterior surface, figure 138, forms the front portion of the posterior fossa of the base of the skull and is continuous with the inner surface of the mastoid portion. Near the centre is a large orifice, the internal acoustic meatus, the size of which varies considerably. Its margins are smooth and rounded, and it leads into a short canal, about one centimetre in length, which runs lateralward. It transmits the facial and acoustic nerves and the internal auditory branch of the basilar artery. The lateral end of the canal is closed by a vertical plate, which is divided by a horizontal crest, the crista falciformis, into two unequal portions. Figure 140. Each portion is further subdivided by a vertical ridge into an anterior and a posterior part. In the portion beneath the crista falciformis are three sets of foramina. One group, just below the posterior part of the crest, situated in the area cribrosa media, consists of several small openings for the nerves to the saccule. Below and behind this area is the foramen singulare, 
or opening for the nerve to the posterior semicircular duct. In front of and below the first is the tractus spiralis foraminosus, consisting of a number of small spirally arranged openings which encircle the canalis centralis cochleae. These openings together with the central canal transmit the nerves to the cochlea. The portion above the cristofalciformis presents behind the area cribrosa superior, pierced by a series of small openings for the passage of the nerves to the utricle and the superior and lateral semicircular ducts, and in front the area facians, with one large opening. The commencement of the canal for the facial nerve, aqueductus fallopii, Behind the internal acoustic meatus is a small slit almost hidden by a thin plate of bone, leading to a canal, the aqueductus vestibuli, which transmits the ductus endolymphaticus together with a small artery and vein. Above and between these two openings is an irregular depression which lodges a process of the dura mater and transmits a small vein. In the infant this depression is represented by a large fossa, the subarcuate fossa which extends backwards as a blind tunnel under the superior semicircular canal. The inferior surface, figure 141, is rough and irregular, and forms part of the exterior of the base of the skull. It presents eleven points for examination. One, near the apex, is a rough surface, quadrilateral in form, which serves partly for the attachment of the levator veli palatini and the cartilaginous portion of the auditory tube and partly for connection with the basilar part of the occipital bone through the intervention of some dense fibrous tissue. 2. Behind this is the large circular aperture of the carotid canal, which descends at first vertically, and then, making a bend, runs horizontally forward and medialward. It transmits into the cranium the internal carotid artery, and the carotid plexus of nerves. 3. Medial to the opening for the carotid canal and close to its posterior border, in front of the jugular fossa, is a triangular depression. At the apex of this is a small opening, the aqueductus cochlei, which lodges a tubular prolongation of the dura mater establishing a communication between the paralymphatic space and the subarachnoid space, and transmits a vein from the cochlea to join the internal jugular. 4. Behind these openings is a deep depression, the jugular fossa, of variable depth and size in different skulls. It lodges the bulb of the internal jugular vein. 5. In the bony ridge dividing the carotid canal from the jugular fossa is a small inferior tympanic canaliculus for the passage of the tympanic branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve. 6. In the lateral part of the jugular fossa is the mastoid canaliculus for the entrance of the auricular branch of the vagus nerve. 7. Behind the jugular fossa is a quadrilateral area, the jugular surface, covered with cartilage in the fresh state, and articulating with the jugular process of the occipital bone. 8. Extending backward from the carotid canal is the vaginal process, a sheath-like plate of bone which divides behind into two laminae. The lateral lamina is continuous with the tympanic part of the bone, the medial with the lateral margin of the jugular surface. 9. Between these laminae is the styloid process, a sharp spine about 2.5 cm in length. 10. Between the styloid and mastoid processes is the stylomastoid foramen. It is the termination of the facial canal and transmits the facial nerve and stylomastoid artery. 11. Situated between the tympanic portion and the mastoid process is the typanomastoid fissure for the exit of the auricular branch of the vagus nerve. Angles. 
The superior angle, the longest, is grooved for the superior petrosal sinus, and gives attachment to the tentorium cerebelli. At its medial extremity is a notch, in which the trigeminal nerve lies. The posterior angle is intermediate in length between the superior and the anterior. Its medial half is marked by a sulcus, which forms, with a corresponding sulcus on the occipital bone, the channel for the inferior petrosal sinus. Its lateral half presents an excavation, the jugular fossa, which, with the jugular notch on the occipital, forms the jugular foramen. An eminence occasionally projects from the centre of the fossa and divides the foramen into two. The anterior angle is divided into two parts. A lateral joined to the squamer by a suture, petrosquamus, the remains of which are more or less distinct. A medial, free, which articulates with the spinous process of the sphenoid. At the angle of junction of the petrous part and the squamer are two canals, one above the other, and separated by a thin plate of bone, the septum canalis musculotubarii, processus cochleariformis. Both canals lead into the tympanic cavity. The upper one, semicanalis em tensoris tympani, transmits the tensor tympani. The lower one, semicanalis tubi auditativi, forms the bony part of the auditory tube. The tympanic cavity, auditory ossicles, and internal ear are described with the organ of hearing. Tympanic part, pars tympanica. The tympanic part is a curved plate of bone lying below the squamer and in front of the mastoid process. Surfaces. Its posterior superior surface is concave and forms the anterior wall, the floor and part of the posterior wall of the bony external acoustic meatus. Medially, it presents a narrow furrow, the tympanic sulcus, for the attachment of the tympanic membrane. Its antero-inferior surface is quadrilateral and slightly concave. It constitutes the posterior boundary of the mandibular fossa and is in contact with the retromandibular part of the parotid gland. Borders. Its lateral border is free and rough and gives attachment to the cartilaginous part of the external acoustic meatus. Internally, the tympanic part is fused with the petrous portion and appears in the retreating angle between it and the squamer, where it lies below and lateral to the orifice of the auditory tube. Posteriorly, it blends with the squamer and mastoid part and forms the anterior boundary of the tympanomastoid fissure. Its upper border fuses laterally with the back of the postglenoid process, while medially it bounds with the petrotympanic fissure. The medial part of the lower border is thin and sharp. Its lateral part splits to enclose the root of the styloid process and is therefore named the vaginal process. The central portion of the tympanic part is thin and in a considerable percentage of skulls is perforated by a hole, the foramen of Huschke. The external acoustic meatus is nearly two centimeters long and is directed inward and slightly forward. At the same time it forms a slight curve so that the floor of the canal is convex upward. In sagittal section it presents an oval or elliptical shape with the long axis directed downward and slightly backward. Its anterior wall and floor and the lower part of its posterior wall are formed by the tympanic part, the roof and upper part of the posterior wall by the squamer. Its inner end is closed, in the recent state, by the tympanic membrane. The upper limit of its outer orifice is formed by the posterior root of the zygomatic process, immediately below which there is sometimes seen a small spine the supramiatal spine, situated at the upper and posterior part of the orifice. Styloid process, processus styloideus.
The styloid process is slender, pointed, and of varying length. It projects downwards and forwards from the undersurface of the temporal bone. Its proximal part, tympanohyal, is ensheathed by the vaginal process of the tympanic portion, while its distal part, stylohyal, gives attachment to the stylohyoid and stylomandibular ligaments, and to the styloglossus, stylohyodeus, and stylopharyngeus muscles. The stylohyoid ligament extends from the apex of the process to the letter cornu of the hyoid bone, and in some instances is partially, in others completely, ossified. Structure. The structure of the squamer is like that of the other cranial bones. The mastoid portion is spongy, and the petrous portion is dense and hard. Ossification. The temporal bone is ossified from eight centers, exclusive of those for the internal ear and the tympanic ossicles, viz. one for the squamer, including the zygomatic process, one for the tympanic part, four for the petrous and mastoid parts, and two for the styloid process. Just before the close of fetal life, figure 142, the temporal bone consists of three principal parts. 1. The squamer is ossified in membrane from a single nucleus, which appears near the root of the zygomatic process about the second month. 2. The petromastoid part is developed from four centres, which make their appearance in a cartilaginous ear capsule about the fifth or sixth month. 1. Prootic appears in the neighbourhood of the eminentia arcuata, spreads in front and above the internal acoustic meatus, and extends to the apex of the bone. It forms part of the cochlea, vestibule, superior semicircular canal, and medial wall of the tympanic cavity. A second, opistotic, appears at the promontory of the medial wall of the tympanic cavity, and surrounds the fenestra cochleae. It forms the floor of the tympanic cavity and vestibule, surrounds the carotid canal, invests the lateral and lower part of the cochlea, and spreads medially below the internal acoustic meatus. A third, pterotic, roofs in the tympanic cavity and antrum, while the fourth, epiotic, appears near the posterior semicircular canal and extends to form the mastoid process, frolic. 3. The tympanic ring is an incomplete circle, in the concavity of which is a groove, the tympanic sulcus, for the attachment of the circumference of the tympanic membrane. This ring expands to form the tympanic part, and is ossified in membrane from a single centre which appears about the third month. The styloid process is developed from the proximal part of the cartilage of the second branchial or hyoid arch by two centres. One for the proximal part, the tympanohyal, appears before birth. The other, comprising the rest of the process, is named the stylohyal, and does not appear until after birth. The tympanic ring unites with the squamer shortly before birth. The pteromastoid part and squamer join during the first year, and the tympanohyal portion of the styloid process about the same time figures 143 and 144. The stylohyal does not unite with the rest of the bone until after puberty, and in some skulls, never at all. The chief subsequent changes in the temporal bone apart from increase in size are 1. The tympanic ring extends outwards and backwards to form the tympanic part. This extension does not, however, take place at an equal rate all round the circumference of the ring, but occurs most rapidly on its anterior and posterior portions and these outgrowths meet and blend, and thus for a time there exists in the floor of the meatus a foramen, the foramen of Hushka. This foramen is usually closed about the fifth year, but may persist throughout life. 2. The mandibular fossa is at first extremely shallow, and looks lateralward as well as downward. 
it becomes deeper and ultimately directed downward. Its change in direction is accounted for as follows. The part of the squamum which forms the fossa lies at first below the level of the zygomatic process. As, however, the base of the skull increases in width, this lower part of the squamer is directed horizontally inward to contribute to the middle fossa of the skull, and its surfaces therefore come to look upward and downward. The attached portion of the zygomatic process also becomes averted, and projects like a shelf at right angles to the squamer. 3. The mastoid portion is at first quite flat, and the stylomastoid foramen and rudimentary styloid process lie immediately behind the tympanic ring. With the development of the air cells, the outer part of the mastoid portion grows downward and forward to form the mastoid process, and the styloid process and stylomastoid foramen now come to lie on the undersurface. The descent of the foramen is necessarily accompanied by a corresponding lengthening of the facial canal. 4. The downward and forward growth of the mastoid process also pushes forward the tympanic part, so that the portion of it which formed the original floor of the Miatus and contained the foramen of Hushka is ultimately found in the interior wall. 5. The fossa subarcuata becomes filled up and almost obliterated. Articulations The temporal articulates with five bones, occipital, parietal, sphenoid, mandible, and zygomatic. End of section 23